Hey everyone, I'm your host Amanda and this is Light It Up. I'm joined by Mark to shine a light on shipwrecks, the very reason why lighthouses were built in the first place. Welcome Mark. Thanks for having me again. There wasn't enough time between the last episode and this episode to cut. You didn't get very many uh, listener responses, so you're, you're still in. <laughs> I'm still that excellent. My probation has been extended. <laughs> very much so until you have your you know formal performance review later on. <laughs> excellent. Thank you. I nervously await. So last episode we spoke to Mike Nash, kind of touching on maritime archaeology. I could actually not stop thinking about maritime archaeology I felt like we were only scratching the surface of this profession and you know wanted to find out more so actually in today's episode we dive deeper into shipwrecks with Cosmos Coronius. Hi Um, my name is Cosmos Coronius I'm an archaeologist um, who works underwater and above water and I'm uh, the director of Cosmos Archaeology. Now he is an actual a real live Australian maritime archaeologist. He runs his own company, Cosmos Archaeology. In this interview, we cover a mutiny, uh, shipwrecks closer to home, treasure, how you even become a maritime archaeologist, what is even a maritime archaeologist, and the fact there are only 20 or 30 left in the country. Are you as excited as I am, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. You, you hear ar- archaeologists and you think of Indiana Jones and then you hear mar- uh, maritime archaeologists and then suddenly you think of in- Indiana Jones in a wetsuit and then, then you're off to the races in terms of your imagination. That was me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> I'll let Cosner, who's been uh, compared to Indiana Jones in a wetsuit. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> All right. Let's have a listen to this. Thanks so much for making the time. Super excited to chat to you today because according to my one and only friend who's an archaeologist, you are the guy to speak to when it comes to maritime archaeology. Yeah, it's not um yeah, so many people can name an archaeologist maritime archaeologist or a famous maritime archaeologist or yeah, we're not we're not around. There was there was a TV star show a few years ago called The Shipwreck Detectives. And it featured a number of Australian maritime archaeologists, especially out of Western Australia. And it was looking for wrecks. I think it was about, oh, could have been late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, so it was run, I think it ran on the ABC. That's right, yes. I think you can watch it via the ABC, but it seems like you might have to uh, be emailed or mailed an order. (laughs) Maybe it's not, hasn't quite made it on Netflix, but, you know, if people are interested and are listening, they might want to uh, request it, you know, lobby for it to get onto Netflix. (laughs) Obviously, the the genesis of lighthouses is the fact they are a navigational aid to avoid shipwrecks. And shipwrecks, I understand, are kind of, uh, one component or maybe a, ma- a major, major component of what a maritime archaeologist does. Sure. I spoke to Mike Nash, who is a heritage Mike. officer at Parks Tabs. Yeah. And um, I know Mike Will. Oh, you do know Mike? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you know Mike? When I graduated in 1990, he was running excavations on the Sydney Cove shipwreck. So I spent a, did a few seasons there. And look, it's a small field. Look, there's only 20 merit, 20 maybe 30 maritime archaeologists in the country. Things have sort of, um, I wouldn't say dissipated, kind of centrifugal forces have separated us all, but back in the early 90s, 90s uh, in the 90s, whenever there was an excavation on anywhere in Australia, just about every maritime archaeologist in the country was involved. There was probably a dozen, dozen, uh, maybe 
20. So we all used to show up either at the annual conference or whoever was running an excavation. It, it's, it's changed a lot in the last, say, 10 years for, for a number of you know, reasons within the industry and governments and things like that. But before that, we were a very, very cohesive group of people. You mentioned there are only maybe 20 to 30 maritime archaeologists in Australia. Um, yep. Why is that the case? A lot of the maritime archaeologists are now employed by government. The heritage departments around the country, they only have so many job vacancies for the archaeologists. And, and because they're responding a lot to development, most of the development happens on land. So a lot of the work that is done by the archaeologists and heritage officers, heritage officers around the country, response to development, which means they need more boots on the ground rather than, you know, fins on feet and in the water. Things are changing a bit now with wind farms and all this sort of stuff. There's sort of a new a new wave rising. The heyday was in the 70s and 80s. What happened in the 70s and 80s? Um, because of scuba, people were taking up scuba, a lot more wrecks were being found. And each state, you know, call it the Big Bang sort of thing that got them going, was that like a, a, an important wreck was found. So a lot of around the country, Tasmania, Oh, sorry, South Australia, Queensland, Western Australia, Northern Territory, Point, Victoria, definitely started up these maritime units. And it was the 70s too. So, you know, there's a lot more money given to the arts. It was a different time. Maritime archaeology in Australia at that time was very proactive in that you go out and you try and manage sites, stop them from deteriorating. So that was quite a different scene as to land archaeologists who, you know, a site tends to mind its own business on land unless it's been picked over by bottle hunters. Whereas in the water, you might get a, a really significant site being exposed and it's going to deteriorate in front of your eyes, even if people don't go plunder it. So a lot of the work that was being done by maritime archaeologists, more proactive, go out there, educate the public about not taking stuff from shipwrecks, you know, anchoring and fishing. And, you know, there's a really significant shipwreck that everyone was fishing on and anchors were pulling it apart. We'd, you know, we'd sink a barge you know, a couple of kilometres away and say, okay, fish on that. Why is it important to educate the public about, you know, not ripping up these sites or taking them apart? Well, these sites are unique. I mean, they're not, uh, they don't reproduce. Well, they don't reproduce. At least old shipwrecks don't reproduce themselves. So, you know, they're a finite resource that will... Um, that will diminish. I mean, shipwrecks will keep happening, but not ones from the 18th century or 19th century. So they are, uh, you know, there's only about, well, only, there's only about 8,000 in Australia that we know of. Sounds like a lot. A lot of them we don't, maybe about 10, 20% now we know where they are, maybe 15%. The rest are still unknown. When you say 8,000, so it sounds like a lot, but when you compare it to a land or any state, you know, which are near infinite, the amount of archaeological sites, especially with Aboriginal sites. You know, the, the shipwreck sites are actually quite a finite, uh, diminishing resource. You're accelerating its um, deterioration by people taking things off. Because how, how did you get into maritime archaeology? It sounds like it's quite a small field. I was always interested in maritime archaeology. I mean, where I come from in Greece, you know, I'm near one of the most important shipwrecks uh, found, Antikythera wreck. And there's another, you know, there's wrecks all around my island and and, and, and another important site on the mainland is the Moose City on, 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 my, on the mainland opposite my village. So, and my dad was a fisherman and, you know, so it just seemed natural. I grew up in cities, eastern suburbs, beaches. So it just seemed natural. I would just end up in the water. I was originally wanted to be a geologist. From a young age, I went out. My dad took me out prospecting a lot around Australia. I spent a lot of time digging and 
trying to figure out where gold was was in the you know in the river bank and where was the best place to dig for gold and all that sort of stuff. So so to me, history and digging in archaeology just seem to be a natural um, a natural fix. I understand from Tara that you have been part of the excavation of some of the most major shipwrecks around Australia. So, for example, the Pandora and the Sirius. Would you be able to explain um, and describe, you know, what were these wrecks, why were they so important and what your role was? So the Sirius was one of the ships from the First Fleet that came out. It was the, I think it was the, the main, you know, vessel had guns on it to, you know, protect the fleet and all that. It was basically the lifeline between Sydney Colony and the rest of the world and it was used to take out convicts over to Norfolk Island to settle Norfolk Island on its second trip there. It got wrecked. It had a pretty big impact on on Sydney uh, itself when they heard of the wreck because they all felt extremely isolated as it was. It was 1790 when it got wrecked because it would go off to South America and bring back supplies. So they, was, they saw it as its basic connection with the rest of the world. So when that vessel got wrecked, they, it, was, it was pretty uh, morale-sapping for the colony, both Norfolk and Sydney. We had two days of almost like pool-like conditions that we managed to survey, video, photogrammetry, and, and redo the site map. There's not much left of it there. Um, only, it's just mainly the big durable iron ballast blocks, uh, the anchors, two anchors, uh, three now, and that's mainly it. And the smaller objects like you know, lead shot or copper sheathing and tacks and things like that, they're all kind of found their way secreted into into nooks and crannies on the reef. So it's a pretty pitiless area. You know, most of the year we were just lucky to dive on it. So that's that site, the, the serious. The other one's the Pandora. Well, that was the vessel that was um, um, sent out to hunt down the uh, uh, bounty mutineers. And it went all around the South Pacific. Um, there are bounty mutineers. Could you could you speak more about what the bounty mutineers? Who they were? Oh, well, the, when the crew of the bounty under Fletcher Christian mutinied and set Captain Bly adrift, and he made it back to to England eventually, came out to be governor of Sydney. That's another story. But the sailors who were left on the on the bounty. Went back to Tahiti, or the, around Tahiti. They went back to Tahiti. Some of them stayed on Tahiti, and the rest sailed on to Kitcairn Island, and they burnt the, the bounty and stayed there. And incidentally, Norfolk Island was in the eighteen fifties was settled by the descendants of those mutineers from Kitcairn Island. But that's how the, I suppose, the circle closes. But when it comes back to the the bounty, the the Pandora itself, the when Bill Bly got back to England, they basically said, we can't have people mutinying like this. So they fitted out the Pandora, which is a frigate, and they just said, go out and find the mutineers and don't come back without them. And sure enough, it went out. they went out and they picked up the guys who'd been left on Tahiti and they had them on a, in a cage called Pandora's Box on the deck of the boat where I don't know how many months they weren't looking around for the others, but they couldn't. They didn't know of Pitcairn Island's existence at that time. They were travelling, enough was enough. They searched as far as they could, they couldn't find the rest of So they started back to England and they got wrecked at Torres Strait, at the entrance of Torres Strait. The crew, I think 200, about 200 died. I can't remember now, I'm off the top of my head. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people perished, but quite a few also survived and they, um, 
it's a pretty grim story. I mean, other than the fact that a lot of people were drowned in that wreck, but the captain, the crew, um, swam off to a little sand cave nearby and survived there. A lot of guys drowned trying to swim there. The captain just said, let them drown, like, you know, rats in a cage sort of thing. We don't care, the mutineers. But one of the crew handed them a key as he was jumping overboard and said, you know, good luck to you because they're all manacled. So they managed, there was quite a, uh, maybe 14, I think the number comes to mind, that, that were in the cage, about eight or nine got out. The rest drowned. They swam ashore. The captain wouldn't give them any water or shelter. So they were buried. They buried themselves up to their necks in the sand, the sand, because the sand um, cave, because they'd been sitting in a cage for a better part of two months and they'd basically gone white. So they were getting burnt pretty badly up there in the tropics where they were. The, the, the captain and the crew managed to uh, salvage some, I think, the longboats from the wreck. Um, and they put the survivors on and they went off from where they are. Imagine at New Guinea there, top of Cape York. They sailed off to Jakarta and eventually made it back to England. And I think most of the mutineers were trialled and hung after all that. So I think one or two survived, weren't sentenced to death. So the Pandora was rediscovered, I think, in the 1970s. Um, and uh, the Queensland Museum was very much involved um, over a number of seasons from the 80s into the 90s on excavating the wreck. And I was at that time, it was quite an interesting, it was very interesting because it was, it was one of those sites that, um, apart from the ship's stove and anchor, there's not much above the seabed, about 35, six metres deep, the wreck. So the majority, like I'd say about a quarter of it, is actually buried, completely buried um, under the sand. You know, you're sort of diving 36 metres and you're kind of at that depth where you you get a bit narked, nitrogen narcosis, I don't know if you know that effect, but it's the effect of being a bit, bit drunk and tipsy. Um, and you're trying to excavate in a... Imagine trying to excavate an apartment block that's fallen over at 45 degrees. So everything's at an angle. Um, you know, you've got, you know, you got shelves uh, with, you know, jars in them still at angles. Um the occasional human remains and things like that as well in there. So it's a very surreal excavation um, to work on. It was very fantastic, challenging. It was, it was quite amazing. I don't think I've seen so much um, with the Pandora. The more you dug, you excavated into the into the wreck, the more nutrients you were releasing and so the more fish that would congregate. So you used to just dive down and you know where your trench was because it was just this wall of, wall of fish everywhere and you had this sort of concentric circle of, fish sizes where you had these really tiny fish that were almost transparent except for their little silver eyes actually where you're working and then you had the bigger fish that ate them and the bigger fish that ate those fish and so on until you go up to the edge of your vision say 20 meters away and you could just see sharks patrolling patrolling around the perimeter but you couldn't even you, you couldn't take photos half the time because Every time you try to take a photo, you just couldn't get the fish out of the way. <laughs> and at so, that point, you're probably thinking, man, I really must be drunk, all of this fish just yeah. like flying around, bubbles everywhere. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the narcosis the, the effects, you know, you can counteract it by, by doing certain things. But it was one of the weirdest things. It was in the, it was the captain's storeroom. Uh, and the captain's storeroom was on one side of the ship. And we were digging into that. But what had happened was that the, because the ship had you know, fallen on its side, side at 45 degrees, 
the surgeon's cabin was on the opposite side of the vessel and everything had fallen in, to, you know, it slid in to the captain's quarter, so, or captain's storeroom. So we're sort of excavating in there and and then one day I was just digging in, you know, it's a ceramic or glass or, and things like that, um, plates and whatever, and all of a sudden I saw this silver thing whizzed through, you know, in front of my face mask and I was, was going, that is really weird. Like I had to take a five and think, am I underwater or am I still on land? Because it was actually mercury that the surgeon had. And mercury at 36 metres underwater behaves exactly the same way as it behaves on land. So it did jolt me for a while trying to work out where I was. Have you ever discovered treasure? I think a lot of people, when they think about, you know, you're almost underwater explorers. Have you ever discovered, you know, a treasure chest or the gold that, you know, the bounty hunters are after? Obviously, you find silver objects and gold objects, but nothing treasure chest or anything. A fair more gold than digging in um, slum some sites in the inner Sydney than I found ever underwater. No, no, <laughs> you just you um, just dispelled uh, you know the hopes of many people searching around shipwrecks. Yeah, yeah. Well, you don't, you don't. I mean, like you know, it's one of those things that go into it to find treasure. I mean, you know, the treasures in the in the data, not in the in the, in the monetary value of the of the objects. It's not now. If you're into that, you're not a maritime archaeologist. What happened to all those? You know, the cargo ships that inevitably would have sunk have they just not been found? You know, with their Precious, you know, you know, the gold rush. Where did all that gold go? Or, you know, treasures from the Orient coming through. The, the certain probably mythology about treasure ships as such, you know, and things like that, that. That might be the case with, say, the Spanish, the Spanish Pacific Empire in the 1600s and 1700s. But unless these wrecks happen in really deep, deep, deep water, they get salvaged. You know, mm. they're in about 10, 20 metres of water. You know, everyone knows their monetary values. So they're going to go and. And uh, salvage it. So, like for example, the Sydney Cove wreck had, uh, you know, Chinese ports and had rum. More importantly, big cargo, Bengal rum. So, what's been the most interesting thing you found? My approach to what I'm finding interesting underwater is more or less what would a you know forensic anthropologist would do, or you know, crash scene investigator, or so effectively, you know, shipwrecks. You're effectively an underwater, you know, crash scene investigator. So you're trying to reconstruct a site from partially surviving information trying to tell the story i love that analogy of you know you are an underwater you know crash scene investigator so a lot of the work that archaeologists do underway you know, archaeologists not just underwater archaeologists a lot of you know we're effectively crash scene investigators more so <laughs> more so with shipwreck and who do you attribute the uh you know the cause of the crash you know often these investigate on land you know the investigation is you know who did it who was in the wrong i suspect in this case you know it's probably the ship. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, there was a guy at the National Maritime Museum was involved with um, the Navy in, in searching for the uh, AE-1 off um, uh, Rabaul in New Guinea, in, in uh, New Britain, and um, uh, part of the job, you know, James Hunter was, was, I remember giving a talk on it, was was trying to work out why this vessel sunk because it, it, in, during World War One, it, it sailed off in a routine patrol from a ball and was never seen again, no survivors. So then they, you know, found the, the wreck only a few years ago and they video, you know, they've done all the video recordings and trying to work out why it's sunk. Why, and same with the HMAS Australia. It's the same reason that's the, uh, off the Western Australian coast as to why did it, um, you know, have it sink and how come no one survived and, and stuff like that. So they're trying to piece it. Obviously, these wrecks are too deep for archaeologists to dive on. 
but now with, with remote operated vehicles and video cameras, you know, like that what James Cameron did with the Titanic, you can actually um, do a lot. Yeah, it's still not as good as being down there and sticking your head under a cranny or you know under a ledge or something like that. But you know the the ROVs nowadays, the technology that's around with with photogrammetry, gets some amazing results, um, incredible results, sometimes even better than what a person could do. <laughs> I just love the way you've described the field of maritime archaeology as, you know, your underwater scene investigators. And now I'm just imagining this This is such a cool field of you've got a bit of action with the bounty hunters, you know. I'm imagining you diving with, you know, your USI crime scene jackets on as you investigate the source of it, a source of the crash and, you know, what happened and when. <laughs> well, actually, the, the Queensland Museum used to have overalls, um, Queensland Museum overalls, so we look very... Um, yeah, we look very much um, in uh, enviro suit type situations with helmets on and stuff like that. Nowadays, in the tropics, I dive with overalls, you know, the pretty much stuff you see on construction sites. So we all look like construction workers going underwater. But in the past, yeah, it did look like CSI investigators, but that was that was mainly because of um, sponsorship issues. Uh, that's another story. Yeah. What do you enjoy most about being underwater? To me... Well, for me, it's a challenge. When you're on land, you've got a whole day to sort, you know, you're digging and you can talk to people and you can sort out a problem, you can stand around and look at it. But compared to underwater, sometimes you're just down there on your own. How old's this wreck? How big is it? You know, what, what's its name? So you're running around the wreck site on your own trying to solve a problem for half an hour, an hour, knowing that that's all the time you might get. You might not be able to get on that site again for a very long time. The other thing is, you know, it's it's not bad being underwater and sort of, you know, you're digging and, you know, you've got a leather jacket trying to bite your fingers or a cuttlefish in front of you trying to, you know, scare you with its changing lights and menacing eyes and things like that. So it's sort of, it, you, you kind of feel like you're a lot closer to nature. You can hold your breath a bit and it's as quiet as. And so, so yeah, so to me it's that combination of, of being in, a, you know, let's face it, it's a pretty extreme environment trying to do something in a short period of time, uh, solve a problem in a puzzle and being close to nature. Yeah, yeah. In, in the words of, you know, that character from the castle, you know, how's the serenity down there? Serenity. Where's the... Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes sometimes when my um, when face mask isn't fitting on properly and I've just got a brush of bubbles in my ear for about 45 minutes, it's, um, yeah, the serenity is, yeah, sometimes it's quite maddening. Other times, yes, the... The serenity is there. You just, especially if you're on scuba, you just uh, you know a normal half mask and and uh, just you and maybe a seal or two and, and just doing your job calmly underwater. It's very very pleasurable. Hence, I don't like diving deep. I actually like my my preferred depth is around about four or five meters because I could spend longer underwater doing doing stuff. Mm. And your and your annoying colleagues actually have morphed into just fish and cuttlefish. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Away. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes a seal might come along and decide to scare the hell out of you. But um, yeah, and yeah, you got octopuses that tend to steal things from you. Yeah, we usually have a sight a sight octopus that uh, is, is, is living in a wreck, and you know we give it a name, and you know if we leave anything down there, like a tape measure or something like that, we know it will disappear into its nest. <laughs> Have they you seen to... that? Um, have you seen that uh, Netflix series called My Octopus Teacher? No. It's this guy in South Africa who essentially dove every day to the same spot and befriended an octopus and documented her life. <laughs> right. Well, being, being Greek, I, I, 
that uh, it's not very um, octopuses. I, yeah, I don't see them as friends. But I'm not seen as food, but I know what you mean. <laughs> they're very, they're very, they're very smart animals. Yeah, but there was, there was, there was. I can't remember. There was a, I can't remember the name of the wreck. It was the Xantha in Western Australia. It was, oh, it was before my time. It was in the eighties when they were working on it, and there was a octopus there. They nicknamed Sydney, and they didn't. They would go down and do some work on the side. They leave tape measures and things like that down there, and they come down the next day, and they're all gone. And they would couldn't understand why, you know, what's happening. What like the current was strong enough to take away those heavy seas, and they. We were working from one end of the wreck to the other, recording it and videoing it and writing up. And they got to one, the other, one end and they they basically found all their tape measures around a hole. And it was Sydney. Was, that was Sydney and it would just take the tape measures and line its or his or her hole to attract mates. <laughs> you know, a bit like a bird. You know, a bird takes whatever bits and pieces and adorns it. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what octopuses do. Octopi and, and, and leather jackets seem to be very fearless. They're like little um, Scotch terriers. You know, just regardless of their size, they'll come and come and attack you. I love your insight into the world uh, underwater because it is just seems to be just as vibrant with character as land, but with all between all the animals and nature. It, look, I mean, I, I, I painted you a nice picture there. I mean, a lot of the work as consultants I do it tends to be, you know, these these are my experiences, say, on, on government or museum excavations, which were, you know, they, they chose the the great sites to work on and great wrecks or important wrecks. But some, a lot of the work we do, say, is in I can't see. You know, like I literally open my eyes and close my eyes, it doesn't make a difference. It, that in itself has its own attraction, um, being in a situation where you completely... Um, uh, you know, oh, what do you mean by you can't see, as in you're blind underwater? Yeah, yeah, that makes no. Yeah, because you're in a river or um, it's very silty. Sometimes, you know, like I do a lot of diving up in Darwin and, you know, if you weren't careful what you're doing, all of a sudden you wouldn't know which way it was up, you know, because it, it was just completely silted up, the whole area. So, so even that has its attractions, you know. As I said, like sometimes, you know, in Darwin Harbour, I'll be working on, say, one of the, you know, World War Two Catalina wrecks and we're just you and that wreck for about an hour and a half on your own. It was just quite pleasurable. The only thing would be is you have to be careful not to get done by stonefish. For me, they've all got its own own attraction, you know. So in Darwin Harbour, it's, it's warm water, you know, and, you, and it's, you know, just very pleasant. You know, you can't see much. <laughs> <laughs> Working blind. Um, thanks so much, no. Cos. It has been an absolute pleasure. I love all of the uh, the new ways of looking at maritime archaeology as underwater crash scene investigators. That's what I'm going to take away. <laughs> that's good because that's what I always, when I teach, when I get a chance to teach, that's what I try and tell students. When you look at a shipwreck, you're, you're an underwater crash scene investigator. That's what you are. Now, Mark, earlier on, I know you analogised Cos as a... Uh, Indiana Jones in a wetsuit. You might need to refresh that image into CSI investigator in a wetsuit. Yeah, I'm just I'm just now imagining Indiana Jones in a pair of overalls. Um, I don't think the movies would have sold as well, but um, yeah, the the CSI in a um, in a wetsuit that that's pretty good. I like it. It's amazing listening to Cos talking about the mutiny because it's something that you vaguely touch on in history when you're um, 
when you're at school, um, but to actually understand a little bit more about through sort of primary evidence um, such as shipwrecks, it sort of makes history more tangible. So that was one of the one of the things that I was thinking about whilst listening to him, just to know a little bit more about, you know, our own history. And I think that sometimes gets lost. And I think the lesson there is to, if you're trying to outrun the government, don't pick an island people already know about. <laughs> Go and pick one that's undiscovered or make your own. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that. That's helpful for if I ever want to, uh, you know, go on go on the run. I wonder actually how many islands are, are left in the world that are actually undiscovered. I'd, I'd imagine that we've probably found most of them. Surely. I was thinking actually you'd go around volcanically active regions. You know, new islands right. popping up every now and then. You know, the Ring of Fire. You know, around the Pacific, or you know, Iceland. Just, you know, or something. every. every Every day, just popping up, just just casually, just oh, there's, there's yeah. a new island that's been made. It's not a slow process or anything at all. <laughs> it only takes a couple of million years. <laughs> Probably all yeah, exactly, exactly. I'll just sit around in my my little dinghy that I've been cast off, just waiting for the next volcanic island to to appear. That's the impression I get from you know watching David Attenborough documentaries. There just seems to be an active volcano left, right, and center out there. Oh, yeah. Good old David Attenborough. What a what a living legend. He has a voice for radio. I think I've just found a replacement. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'd happily uh, give up my seat for David Attenborough if you can get him. So yeah, you just <laughs> let me know and I'll I'll vacate the seat. I'll email his agent right now. He's probably making, you know, Blue Planet 3 at the moment, but I'm sure he'll make some time for this podcast. Thank you, firstly, to Cos Caronius, our resident Indiana Jones in a wetsuit. Thanks to Tara and Cosmos Archaeology for their support in the making of this episode. Thank you to Ashley Sullivan for his great recommendation. And thanks, of course, to my co-host, Mark, our very own face of radio. Up next, we explore other treasures that can be found in and around lighthouses and shipwrecks, natural wonders and earthworms. Until then, stick around for an explanation from Jess Clifford on the origin story of Point Perpendicular Lighthouse. Thank you for listening. Well, Point Perpendicular is, I guess, my home lighthouse. Uh, it's just across the peninsula from where I live and actually you can you can see it from the beach at night if, if it's a clear night, but the... The thing that I love about Point Perpendicular is is really just the incredible natural beauty that surrounds it. It's right at the end of the Beecroft Peninsula and it looks back over Jervis Bay. You can essentially see the whole of Jervis Bay and Jervis Bay is such a uh, huge tourist destination here in, in New South Wales and Australia. It's thousands and thousands, well, actually millions of people come to visit every year. But being out on the Beecroft at Point Perpendicular just gives you such a unique perspective into the bay because you really can see everything. You can you can even see HMAS Creswell, which is just on the other side of the bay, and all the ships coming in and out of there. Um, it's quite a long drive out there, so it's, you know, a good 10 or 20 kilometres from the main road and it's through a, a defence weapons range. So it's quite a dramatic sort of drive to get out there. And um, 
it's always incredibly windy, but when you get it on a clear night, especially in the winter, sometimes it's actually so clear and so dark that you can, well, on the right kind of night, you can actually see um, the Aurora Australis, which is pretty incredible. I'd say it's one of the only places along the coastline where it would be dark enough and clear enough um, to see that kind of phenomenon. So it really is just a a spectacular place. Um, The lighthouse itself uh, was built or it was lit in 1899, but it was actually decommissioned in 1993 and replaced with a solar-powered light. And I think most lighthouse people will tell you that it's a fairly ugly solar structure that's been sort of plonked in front of this beautiful um, 100-year-old lighthouse. But uh, there was a a fairly passionate group of people, um, including my dad, with the help of Defence, who spent millions restoring the tower in the early 2000s, have managed to get point perpendicular working again. So it gets relit once a year. Um, and so it's obviously a really special time getting to go out there. And it's also incidentally almost identical in its plan to my second favourite lighthouse, which is Cape Byron. So I think, um, yeah, just an all-round spectacular place. And, and it's one of those ones you also can go and visit on the weekends. So pretty cool spot. But the other, I guess, interesting one, I, I can't remember, you know, the the name of the ship, but I know if you're talking about shipwrecks, Um, and lighthouses being built reactively, Point Perpendicular was actually built because Cape St George, which was the original lighthouse in Jervis Bay around the corner, just really wasn't doing its job properly. It was too far in and um, ships were, you know, continuously missing it. (laughs) So there's quite a number of shipwrecks at Jervis Bay and it's because basically – you know, ships would be coming up the coastline and, and Cape St. George Lighthouse was so obscured that ships just couldn't see it until the last minute. So that's actually why they abandoned that lighthouse and moved the lighthouse out to um, Point Perpendicular. So, yeah, certainly it was reactive and I guess, you know, they reacted so strongly that sometimes they would actually have to change the location of lighthouses altogether to, to make it work. Sounds like a costly and, um, you know, whoever the engineer on that job or the site planner was probably didn't um, take the best, uh, I don't know, readings. Yeah, yeah. You you kind of have to wonder, don't you, how much that would have cost the uh, the taxpayer back in the day. I mean, it used to cost upwards of £20,000 to to build a lighthouse. So, you know, by uh, comparative standards, it was a really expensive exercise. (laughs) Light. 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 House. Lighthouse. Lighthouse. Thanks for having me on your show. I've been a long time listener. I really love your work. 